The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Org. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Uh, Najiba Syed. She is the Associate Professor of Muslim and Interreligious Studies at Chicago Theological Seminary. She's also contributed to the Huffington Post, LA Times, NPR, and PBS. Uh, Najiba, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here um, and to be in conversation with both you and the wider um, listenership of this podcast. Well, I promise by the end of the conversation, you're definitely going to want to talk to the wider listener base and, and not to me. I'm, I'm not that remarkable. Okay. 
Um, now, you know, before we kind of jump into our conversation a bit, uh, you're you're in Southern California, which means not only have you experienced the COVID pandemic, but you've also experienced the wildfires. How how are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm okay. Um, as you mentioned, I am a professor at Chicago Theological Seminary, and still because of so many <laughs> intervening factors located in Los Angeles for the moment. It's been tough. I actually live uh, close to the wildfires and was on the road for about, I had to leave my home for about two weeks because the air quality was so poor up here close to the mountains. Now, uh, you've served as the chair and mediator for restorative justice and peace building programs. You've won countless awards, but uh, for our audience, tell us a little bit about the person behind all this great work. Um, well, I'm the, <laughs> it's funny because I think we, you know, I see myself as a pretty boring and uninteresting person. So, um, so I think, you know, everyday life is, um, I am someone who migrated to the United States uh, when I was three years old and became a naturalized citizen. I uh, immigrated from Kashmir um, and Kashmir is a part of the world that has one of the highest civilian, sorry, highest ratio of military to civilian population along the line of control between India and Pakistan. So, you know, for me, the work of conflict resolution, the role of religion in conflict, um, issues of violence have really been a part of my life um, and the history and story of migration and becoming a U.S. citizen are also part of my story. And uh, behind all of that or in all of that is, you know, I'm a mother of two kids and um, an academic that came into the world as a professor after 10 years. I've been out, this is my 11th year of teaching. Uh, prior to these last 10 years of teaching, I was a uh, executive in the nonprofit world and uh, running organizations that did conflict resolution, restorative justice, particularly with um, schools, uh, children as young as from birth all the way to high school. So I have sort of a, a very uh, deep interest in the manifestation of peace and justice work from uh, my experience as an immigrant, my experience as a mother, my experience as uh, someone who has seen what happens when militarization and violence become the forces of how people are governed. Over the last few months, uh, we've seen the overwhelming evidence of racial disparity in America. Um, but I wonder if you'll give us uh, insight into how this pandemic has amplified um, also the, the religious disparity in America? You know, I think that's a really interesting question because I think one can't really look at race uh, without looking at religion or look at religion without looking at race, although very often they are teased out as if they are uh, variables, whether it's in our research or parts or forms of identity in people's embodiment or at the congregational level. And I think one of the things, the story of the pandemic is really uh, the story of this country and the many populations <laughs> that, are, um, that are struggling within their own um, reality and manifestation of, of what it looks like 
to see justice uh, both manifested or sometimes to be advocates to have justice denied. So I think um, I think the story of religion and race as it's playing out in this pandemic is really not a new story. This is not a sudden awakening. This is not a um, this is not a, a a new condition. I think what is happening is that there is attention being paid to stories that have always been there, um, and the massive death that has come out of this pandemic highlights the capacity of larger systems to be um, agents of, of deep discrimination that lead to violence. Um, and in my work and the work of scholars like Johan Galtung, this idea of structural violence, I think we have begun to address issues like systemic racism, um, structural racism, and now I think it's time to, to have more conversations about the role of religion, race, um, national origin, you know, citizenship status, all these things are playing a major role in looking at the fact that um, those that are um, hit hardest in terms of, in terms of deaths, um, particularly in certain uh, regions of the United States have been the Latinx and black communities. Um, coming from California, I think that's been a big, um, a big revelation for some folks recognizing that, um, that for instance, a Latinx community, which um, is also, which is also uh, a community that is engaged uh, in industries that have also not really had the light of human rights um, advocacy, the meatpacking industry, um, those that are farm workers in California, uh, the disproportionate effect that this virus has had um, and on incarcerated people. Um, so all of the all of the all of the ways that structural violence has manifested already are exacerbated by the fact that access to healthcare, access to safe working conditions, access to um, access to a reality that has a safety net, um, and in fact, we know that unfortunately, COVID is being used to penalize people. For instance. Uh, who may be seeking asylum at the border, um, people who are in the naturalization process for their green card or citizenship, accessing public benefits can jeopardize them. So not only is there a lack of a system, but if you even access <laughs> what little is there, you can be penalized for it. So I think um, in answering your question, I think we're seeing religion play a role in perpetuating violence, unfortunately, or justifying violence or justifying um, this form of structural violence based on racism, anti-immigrant xenophobia and other factors. And we're seeing religion play a role in incredible altruism, communities coming together across many lines, racial lines, political lines, helping one another, we're seeing religion play a role in, um, I just gave a lecture and I'm writing an article on how the marking of the passing of now, as we're speaking on this day in October, more than 220,000 people have died. Um, 
and just speaking their names, saying their names, because there has been no public ritual or there has been no public acknowledgement from um, the leadership at the national level of this country. In many ways, those stories have been erased. So religious leaders have been establishing days of mourning, rituals of mourning, sharing the stories of those um, that are uh, dealing with the incredible impact of this virus. So I think that is a role that religion is religion and religious people and religious leaders are playing, um, I think, a very important role in marking those passings. Because if they're not marked, then it's as if it's as if there's an erasure of these 200 plus lives that we have lost as a nation. Well, as, as you indicated before, this is not a new conversation. It's not a new struggle, um, but certainly crisis um, uh, amplifies and elevates uh, the dynamics of the conversation. And I certainly think that the pandemic, having some people slow down their lives and uh, literally have to stay at home has uh, has made them more aware, uh, if you will, of, of what is happening um, in a lot of our communities. Um, so I wonder, you know, does this feel different? Do we, does this conversation feel different? Does the direction and resolution as if there's not an end point, but moving towards a positive resolution, does, it, does this feel different than, than times past? I mean, I think it certainly matters um, what your vantage point is. And I think recognizing, for instance, some people, you know, I'm a professor, I have an incredible privilege of being able to stay at home, you know, so not everyone even has that ability to take, you know, to slow down other folks. Um, as I mentioned, different industries that we now find, you know, the feeding of our nation, the functions of transportation, all of these essential workers they don't have that capacity to slow down, to reflect. So I, I really hesitate to say it feels different across the board. I think depending on your vantage point, it also teaches you about what privileges and advantages and safety net and capacity for um, in many ways, you know, being able to shut yourself off from the world that that is, the, what you're able to do during this pandemic is really an indication of how much uh, how much power and privilege one has accumulated or the lack of access to uh, basic uh, basic uh, human rights <laughs> one has. So I just wanted to point that out. I think that's a really important, you know, for your listeners to think through, you know, when I read articles about, um, folks having, you know, time to learn a second language during pandemic, or this is the time to, you know, sit down and meditate. And I, I think about how those stories are not universal. And, um, you know, so I, I was recently on a panel with uh, an organizer with the Poor People's Campaign, Erica Williams, and she was speaking, for instance, um, about, and she's a very deeply, uh, deeply rooted in her Christian faith as an organizer. And she was saying, for instance, for Black people in the United States, you know, there was a, they were all, there was already a pandemic before the pandemic, you know, that there was this, the pandemic of, of mass incarceration, the reality of, of systems that um, result in, as we talked about earlier, forms of structural violence that communities are experiencing. So, 
you know, I, I, I think my students, I drive them crazy because whenever I'm asked a question, I often ask them another question. So maybe the deeper question is, you know, what and what am I learning about myself in the pandemic, not just as a religious person and a spiritual person, but what am I learning about my ability to, um, to have access to systems of care um, that give me that, um, you know, that, that, um, that space and time that I am able to, to have for reflection. So I just wanted to point that out. I think even how we approach that question in and of itself is somewhat revelatory of our positionality in society and where we exist. I would say that what is different about it is just the sheer volume of, of, um, of death and the sort of this inability to be able to talk about the stories of people who have passed away. I don't, I don't see those stories shared. Um, if this had been a, um, you know, a war, if there had been another kind of force that created this level of destruction, I just feel like it would have been, um, the stories of the people that we've lost would have been shared um, far more readily. I really think about faith leaders um, that have been in denominations and congregations that have been, um, because of the disproportionate impact um, that this virus has had on certain communities, you know, reading about a pastor in New York, a Latinx pastor that has had to minister to so many of his of his uh, congregation to think about um, some of the minoritized uh, church uh, communities that have lost, you know, just so many important um, leaders. So I think it also impacts religious communities that intersect with issues around race, um, around other uh, factors. You'll see a disproportionate impact in mourning and reality of, I'm sorry, excuse me, reality of how does one think about uh, leadership when leadership has been so much deeply impacted. Um, so I think it's different. I think the scale is different. I think what is not um, surprising to people who are tuned in or whose reality every day, day in and day out, um, you know, disparities are, are apparent already. I think this is, um, I think, I think the volume of destruction of lives is is something that um, is going to have a generational impact, and not just people who have passed away, but across the board. Um, you know, I think we're now seeing um, the impact of an inability to pay your mortgage, to pay your rent, <laughs> to. Um, you know, uh, to hold a job. Unemployment is so high right now in this country and the economic impact that this virus will have on us is also something that needs a lot more attention at the spiritual care level, as well as the systems that uh, faith-based groups can offer for support for those that are impacted at the economic level as well. One of the aspects that I think um, kind of you bring a unique angle is is um, 
you know, your expertise, uh, which is in interreligious education. And you contributed to a new book that came out earlier this year, Critical Perspectives, Interreligious Education Experiment and Empathy. And this is a collaborative work across many faiths, groups, evangelicals, uh, Muslim, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, and religious hybrids. And you examine the roots of racism and xenophobia and sexism and their interaction with uh, religion that contribute to uh, an inequity, uh, the volume that offers real world educational intervention. So for those that aren't familiar with this concept, uh, walk us through what interreligious education is. So I think, um, I think for those that are not familiar, they might have heard of interfaith learning or interfaith encounters where the goal is religious understanding or religious literacy. And very often that will happen at the congregational level or community level and um, uh, around the country historically um, in the United States, there were, um, depending on your region, ecumenical councils. So for instance, in the South Coast uh, part of Los Angeles County and Orange County, there was a South Coast. It was originally an ecumenical council. It's now an interfaith council. So you saw the, the movement from an ecumenical to an interreligious or interfaith uh, community base happen all over this country. So many, you know, many people will be familiar with local interfaith councils, um, often uh, domestic violence shelters, shelters that uh, serve shelter, those that without shelter and community um, have also become more interfaith in their service uh, across the country. So you'll see interfaith service cooperative organizations. So the, the idea of interfaith engagement, interfaith service, interfaith, um, interfaith organizations, um, it's, it's, it's something that has been around in the United States at the organizational level for many, many years. And um, you know, many of us consider, for instance, the civil rights movement an interfaith movement. When you see Christians, Jews, Muslims um, working together, it was not a mono-religious movement. It was a multi-faith movement. And in this moment, um, we're looking at, for instance, Christian theological education, and thinking about what makes, uh, you know, what what makes. A, a good religious leader in this time and in this space of a multi-religious United States. I think it's important to point out that um, it's important to point out that uh, multi-religious communities have existed since the inception and before before the United States existed as well. Just <laughs> demographically, the United States has always been multi-religious. We know that a good uh, a a percentage uh, scholars uh, will place it at different at different points of those that came to the United States, enslaved Africans were Muslims. So religious diversity is a part of the story of the United States. And I just remind people of that because very often we think of the interfaith or interreligious component in theological education as something new. And in fact, this is not a new part of the American story. It is the American story. Um, so that, you know, that's sort of the historical perspective of interfaith work. Then we've seen a rise of interfaith engagement on college and university campuses. So now we have Catholic as well as 
Protestant institutions looking at how to prepare their clergy for vocation of um, vocation of religious leadership. But I think there was also this reality that with a multi-religious setting, a minister, a pastor, a priest shouldn't just learn about other religious traditions. They should also engage and understand what it means to do the work. And for those um, denominations, congregations or religious leaders that lean into social justice, we also are thinking about what does it mean to do multi-faith engagement around social justice issues. So advocacy becomes a part of the conversation as well. And I think the rise of um, many global uh, Christians attending institutions in the United States as well. As uh, you know, I often tell people interfaith education or interreligious education is also intercultural education. So if you are um, a Christian coming from Nigeria or Pakistan or other parts of the world, you may have a very multi-religious family already, people of different religious traditions. So the religious diversity of the world is impacting theological education in the United States. When I'm training pastors who are going back to work in um, Vietnam, in Myanmar with Buddhist populations, they want to be able to know how to work effectively. Um, uh, and so I think, I think what we're seeing is a rise of to be a good religious uh, leader means that you are able to deal with, engage with, cooperate with uh, religious leaders of other traditions. And that means you need to know the communities and how to work with and engage across traditions. So depending on the institution, um, evangelical-based institutions, some of them you know, um, do interreligious work as well. They may not necessarily do it at the level of engaging their institutions um, uh, across the board. You, you may see one class in global religions. You may see one professor that does that work. There are other institutions that have, for instance, like Chicago Theological Seminary and Claremont School of Theology have integrated the notion of an interreligious vision of the world. And they have extended their work, not just in, um, not just working with Christian students and preparing them for global or multi-religious uh, settings, they have also built partnerships with Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, and other institutions so that their campuses are also populated with students of different backgrounds and the actual classroom and co-curricular experience becomes one where you study with people of other traditions and they have often made curricular changes that present students with multiple religious perspectives. The key to this um, is as my, <laughs> one of my favorite pastors that I work with, uh, his name is Pastor Bob Roberts. He uh, led a very large church in Texas and did conferences, particularly for evangelical and actually Southern Baptist and other uh, pastors that I've worked with he always emphasized that we need to stop talking about each other and talk to each other. So really that's the very simple way to explain it. It's about talking to each other and learning, um, 
learning from each other, you know, I think that that would be really the key way I would explain it. And that is a transition from, you know, just um, not being informed by those that actually practice the tradition, know about the tradition, and bring in that lived religion, not just here I am going to go open the Quran and read it from my perspective, but I want to know how it is interpreted or engaged, or me as a Muslim, understanding what it means to be Christian, not just at the time that Prophet Muhammad or my tradition existed 1400 years ago, but what does it mean to be Christian in the world now? That's important for me as a Muslim to understand. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Let's take that concept a little, a little deeper there. You know, anyone can go online and Google a particular faith group that are not familiar with, but um, you've argued that to cultivate a true understanding and appreciation for another faith group, that we should engage in dialogue with those who claim it as their own. So what does that practically look like for someone, let's say like me, that lives in a city that is predominantly, uh, you know, Christian tradition, um, there may be one mosque or Jewish synagogue or Baha'i temple in town. What, what are some practical things that you would tell someone like me in order to uh, dive a little deeper into these conversations? So first of all, and I say this to people of all religious traditions who are listening, that one has to be really careful with online spaces. Some of the, for instance, some of the websites that purport to teach about Islam are often what we call the most Islamophobic, meaning anti-Muslim, or websites that are teaching about Judaism might be very anti-Semitic. What I mean to say is they look like they are sponsored or come from religious institutions in that community, but actually they are um, online spaces that spread disinformation at the at best and at worst um, can often spread information that is deeply rooted in actual hate of that tradition. So I just wanted to be kind of give people a cautionary note. I think there's some great online tools like the Harvard um, Project on Religious Pluralism that you can access that has case studies on religious pluralism. There are, are national organizations uh, of different communities um, that have websites that have uh, authentic information. Um, and so I just wanted to caution all of us that, you know, just be careful. You know, I often, when I will give lectures around the country and I, I'm really dedicated, I often speak in small towns. I try to make it a point to accept invitations in places that don't necessarily have large um, centers of Muslim, uh, di Muslim diversity in that particular region. So, you know, I think it's, it's important to know that you, Online education is one great tool. You just, you need to be careful about what sites you're accessing and whether the information you're accessing is, is, is if the goal of that information is actually to see, um, to seed hatred instead of 
understanding. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there. There are certainly great websites that I would just engage websites or leaders or online Twitter and other, you know, accounts, just be discerning. Um, you know, if you see, if everything you see that comes from that source is absolutely negative, I don't think, one thing I wanted to point is interreligious education doesn't mean you can't be critical. I think it's really important to keep a critical eye uh, when you engage in religious education to be able to ask questions. Here, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, cautioning us to, to be careful, for instance, when you know that millions of dollars were given um, based on uh, different reports by Muslim organizations given to sources that would spread anti-Muslim bias in, in different forms of digital media. So we can trace those kinds of realities. So that's one piece, just a cautionary caveat mTOR, you know, be careful what sources you consume. And in fact, a lot of my students come formed from those sources, whether those sources are online or ones that have been shared um, in the pulpit um, from their communities, they'll come already formed with a vision of, for instance, Islam that is based on those kinds of sources. And so it takes a exploration, not just of Islam. They don't come with a as a tabula rasa, like I'm interested in learning about Muslims, they come already with a bias because that's what they've been exposed to or that's the only exposure. So at the practical level, that's one kind of cautionary tale for online engagement, just to be discerning about what and who you're listening to. The second uh, point that I think is helpful is to know that very often when you're engaging in religious diversity, you can't expect other religious communities to have or look like or sound like or be organized in the same way your community is. Uh, particularly for um, many new, newer communities, um, whether they're immigrant-based communities or for religious communities that organize in ways that don't look the same as you know, um, I know some some of my Christian students will say, "Well, I'm, who's the head? Who's the head imam? Who is the youth pastor? The youth imam?" I was telling them, you know, many many mosques don't have that level of resource available to them. So, the person who gives the Friday sermon, which is the congregational prayer for Muslims, will be a rotating dentist. Uh, you know, someone who's volunteering their time. So when you are doing interreligious engagement, um, other religious communities besides the Muslim community may not have one physical space that they meet in alone or a dedicated religious space. So you may have more religious diversity in your uh, city or in your town than you realize because you can't always, you know, it, it doesn't always look like uh, there's a church and then a mosque that fits the same kind of parameters of how your community organizes themselves. So I just wanted to kind of, the work of seeking out and in doing interreligious engagement, the groundwork um, can be, can be um, you know, challenging at times because uh, other communities may not look the same in terms of how they organize. They may not be as accessible in the same way. And that can be for many reasons. It can be resources, but it can also be that they, as a minority religious community, they may just be used to trying to go under the radar for multiple reasons. Um, for safety, you know, religious spaces 
have been targets of violence in the last um, decade, particularly in the United States. Um, so I'm just pointing that out. I think it's important to keep in mind um, some Muslim communities, for instance, are tied very deeply to their ethnic uh, or linguistic heritage. So a mosque may be predominantly of one community and English may not be the first language that's spoken in that community. Just sort of, you know, different ways that communities organize themselves. So I would really encourage folks to kind of get to know, get out and walk in their neighborhoods and get to know their surrounding community because it may not be that you have a wonderful website, a Facebook page that's updated every few hours. You know, you have to get to know people and part of getting to know people is, as all of our religious traditions uh, command us is to getting to know your neighbor and really try to get to know people in times of peace. You know, I'll often, I'll often hear from folks, I would say, tell my students, get to know people in times of peace so that when a crisis arises, you have that relationship. So, um, you know, I'll tell my students, don't wait till the local synagogue has a hate crime that is in the news and then you go knock on the door and then try to have the door open. You know, that's, that's a very difficult time to suddenly open your community when you've been targeted. So, you know, when there, when you, when, when in every, there, there should be an impetus for interreligious engagement that isn't just responsive to crises. So hopefully we, we think about what that looks like, what that means, and that takes work. I think the third piece is it doesn't always have to be congregational. I think there are many ways to be relational um, uh, in whatever environment you are. Um, I work with, um, I work with um, institutions as diverse as um, businesses that, for instance, uh, there, I got a call, a really interesting call from a mall, uh, you know, a mall management company. And they said, you know, we've been doing these things on Christmas and Hanukkah every year at this mall. And we suddenly realized we have so many Muslim employees and we would like to do something for the Eid holiday, for the Muslim holiday. So it's fascinating that sometimes people think of interreligious engagement in uh, happening only in religious spaces, but there's so many ways that this form of education can occur. So in your workplace, um, you know, are there ways to educate one another about religious practices that impact the workforce? And I've had a lot of interests um, recently in the past couple of years from human resources professionals who want um, more understanding of religious diversity because there's, you know, people talk about cultural diversity, language diversity, but religious diversity for some reason seems to be a very difficult conversation to have. And there are ways to structure it so that you're not pushing one religious community uh, or one religious agenda, but talking about religious diversity and how it's a value for everybody who has um, a religious identity or doesn't. Um, so thinking about points of contact where religious education is beneficial. So workplace environments, schools, um, you know, uh, children learning about uh, religious diversity, we know is, has a long-term impact on how they build bias against other uh, communities or, or also have the capacity to live with people from different religious traditions. Um, and so ultimately in theological education, um, or if you're a community leader, you can also think about um, 
issues that you're passionate about. So um, hunger, you know, if there's a particular cause that you're interested in, um, how can you galvanize people of different religious communities? I'll just give a quick example to kind of wrap up here. Um, there was a local elected official who was not meeting with a DACA recipient who was a constituent of his in, in, that, in his area. And um, this particular family wanted to meet with uh, the elected official. And we were able to bring together rabbis, pastors, Muslim leaders, who we didn't do any protests. We just all went to the office, <laughs> outside the office with the family. And, um, you know, this elected official just seeing this vast array of religious diversity at the table, it wasn't just one person, you know, this was, was moved uh, to set up a meeting with the individual, with the family. So, you know, I think that's another way to think through um, how the causes that you are passionate about as a spiritual person or someone with a religious commitment, it's actually beneficial strategically if you have a multi-faith coalition. And the causes don't always have to be just um, advocacy, as I mentioned, feeding people. Um, the Sikh community has an incredible practice of langar where they feed uh, thousands of people, no matter what their religious background is, in all forms of service. So service is built into all of our traditions. Um, and usually that service is offered no matter who the recipient is in terms of their religious identity. So how do we build uh, networks of support? And that is, I think, the opportunity that arises in times of crisis. We see cooperation, collaboration. Um, you know, I, I got my first set of masks from <laughs> the Episcopal Diocese um, sort of lay people here locally in Los Angeles. A friend of mine who is um, active in the Episcopal Diocese saw that I needed masks and said, hey, we're, the women at my church are sewing a bunch of them this weekend. We're happy to bring you a few. This was very early in the pandemic. So those kinds of ways to support one another. And I really think the story of religion um, in the United States in 2020 is often told as one of conflict, of hatred, as the source of violence. And I think there are so many far more stories that are untold of cooperation, collaboration, um, justice seeking, peace building, um, and particularly in the heartland of the country. I think that smaller towns and smaller spaces are already based on a deeply relational way of existence where you know your neighbor. And when, for instance, in towns like Decorah, Iowa that I went to visit where the mosque, the synagogue and um, local churches work together, the kinds of relationships that are built are so deeply intimate and supportive um, that I actually think much of the hope for interreligious conversation and engagement are not just in the coasts and in large metropolitan areas. I think because people in small towns already have a very kind of interdependent ethic, I think that may be one of the places that growth has happened and will happen and why places like Omaha, Nebraska has an initiative like the Tri-Faith Initiative where a mosque, a synagogue and a church are actually sharing a campus now. So, so just to clarify, um, 
you're telling me that reading the racist white guy's blog or the Baptist preacher's sermon or the conservative politi politician's take on Islam is not the most accurate place to go for information? Well, I think this is the way I would kind of phrase that. I, and I don't think there are many, I don't, I just want to point out that there are many conservative religious leaders that actually do multi-faith engagement. Fuller Theological Seminary, I was an advisor on a project that manifested into a book about interreligious dialogue between evangelical Christians and Muslims. So I just want to point out just because someone's political stance is of a certain persuasion, and just because someone has a more progressive and liberal political stance doesn't mean that they're also going to be uh, free of religious bias. I just think that's important to put out there too. And that's of any, any community and any religious background that I think we have to be careful not to elide or push together this idea that just because one is religiously progressive, that that makes one more open to understanding other religious communities. I think it takes work no matter who you are, first of all, you know. Um, and secondly, if let's say if I was Christian or if I was from a particular background, how would I want people to know about my tradition? And I think the answer would be, uh, you know, so you should learn about another religious tradition the way you would want someone to learn about yours, if that makes sense. Because that's, a, that's an authentic and genuine way to study and learn about other communities. Um, you know, if, if the only way one knew about Christianity, as an example, since you brought it up, was through three websites, one lecture, and one news report, you know, I mean, that's, that's not really, that's not a robust way of understanding another religious tradition. So the way that you would want your own religious tradition practices community, because I think also we have to keep in mind that um, for the Muslim community around the world, this is a global religious community of more, you know, of, of, of millions and millions of people. Um, and in the United States, it's, considered one of the most ethnically and racially diverse communities. So um, I think it's important to keep in mind that um, if you engage in just one, um, if you expose yourself to just one source, one story, that is not the, the sum total. And I think all of us want to be known, um, particularly in a time when it isn't easy to be religious. You know, there are spaces where it's not easy to be religious. So it's actually um, what I often tell my students is, you know, supporting uh, people of other religious traditions to express themselves benefits all of us because it allows for religion to have a uh, space um, in wider society. And I think that that is a challenge for people of multiple religious traditions in our practices and in our capacity to be able to be fully who we are in the public square. We can think of um, endless boundaries that prevent us from living in a more, you know, multi-dimensional pluralistic society. Uh, and yet you alluded to this earlier that um, there's so many things that we find in common and you've indicated that the issue of justice might be the thing uh, that can draw people together. So I wonder kind of in, in closing, wrapping up our conversation, what are some of those justice oriented commonalities across faith groups that you've found? So, you know, I think that's a really good question. I also think it's important to uh, recognize 
um, that one of the things that religion in general injects into the conversation of justice is it moves the notion of justice as merely transactional to transformational. So justice um, by spiritualizing struggles, we are able to have a language of justice that encompasses compassion, that encompasses the notion of um, it's not just uh, getting compensation, it's not just getting retribution for what's happened to me as an individual or even my community. It becomes a conversation of the need for a larger um, a larger consideration of who is human. So um, for instance, in the immigration um, in the immigration realm, there is a lot of concentration on how religion has been used for xenophobia or anti-immigrant sentiment. But we also know that um, refugee resettlement and advocates for refugees, um, actually, many of them are conservative Christian communities and um, that many uh, large uh, organizations that represented the Christian community when this administration was trying to limit um, admissions of refugees to historic lows in the from in the last you know several years in terms of historic lows it was religious communities and christian communities that stood up and 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 have been trying to pressure the administration to change that stance so i wanted to point out that i think and and what's really powerful about this this kind of metaphor of refugee is that the religious traditions that um often um, are in conversation in their own community or with each other, this idea of honoring the stranger, honoring the neighbor, honoring um, those that are seeking or uh, fleeing from persecution. The story of most great prophets is the story of a refugee, right? Seeking asylum from persecution elsewhere. So I think that is one, one very easy uh, way, I don't mean necessarily the work is easy, but the theological task of, of, um, of radical hospitality is embedded in so many of the scriptures of different religious traditions. Um, the idea that one of the goals of religion is the healing of people as individuals and the healing of a larger scale of communities is also a powerful way to think about justice that, um, you know, how, how have, um, how have, how has the hand of God played in, um, in allowing for communities to go through things like pandemics, plagues, you know, these are old stories, these are not new stories, um, to deal with um, economic deprivation how have um, religious communities sought to address uh, power imbalances where decision-making and uh, wealth were concentrated among a very few? I mean, if you think about the notion of sin in many religious traditions, uh, the hoarding of wealth, the hoarding of power, um, most religious traditions, um, thinking about Christian, Muslim, Jewish, but I mean, many religious traditions, it, the sole or primary or main task of the prophets would be to speak truth to power in the Muslim tradition, to speak a word of truth to uh, a tyrant. Um, 
you know, so I think that's another way into the work. The final, so this notion of, of, of what, how do religious communities, uh, how does scripture, how does uh, spiritual practices, how have they sought to equalize power, the power of the world so that it's not concentrated amongst just a few uh, or wealth. Um, I think that's a really important part of how many prophets describe their mission is, is giving opportunity, opening up the doors that were shut to people. And the last one I think that's really important is this notion of peace building. Um, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, this is a line that my uh, late, um, my late uh, mentor, Glenn Stassen, who passed away, he really, he would always tell me, Najiba, we need to thicken Jesus. And that's what he would do in his work. He would thicken the example of Jesus as a peacemaker. And in, in Stassen's work, it wasn't just peacemaking at the individual level. It was this notion of reducing harm of war, of building economic um, opportunities so that violence is not the option that people consider. Uh, he really wanted to address the roots of why conflicts emerge. And we know that very often conflicts emerge. Those of us that study conflict know that they, the disparities, whether it's economic opportunity, educational opportunity, or otherwise, those disparities create conflicts. And, um, you know, I think Glenn was really, really um, thoughtful about engaging um, engaging Christian scripture and tradition as a peacemaking tradition, but even more so as a tradition that can help build peace in the real world. I always tell folks the most abstract concept we think about is peace. You know, people will talk about peace um, and I will tell my students in the beginning of a course, tell me what peace, draw what peace looks like to you. What does it sound like? What does it smell like? Um, and I think, I think that's where religion has an incredible contribution is it is such a galvanizing force. And that's why you see it utilized for violence. Um, and I do think it can be instrumentalized for building uh, systems of peace uh, based deeply in equality. So I think that is one of my hopes. And those are some of the spaces that um, offer opportunity, whether it's service, um, engaging how those that are at the margin, those that are um, those that are often pushed out as strangers in other spaces, um, what do our religions say about our duty and obligation um, to engage across the board? And how um, do our traditions, our prophets, our religious leaders and scriptures think about embodied compassion and what that looks like? Um, at the social level, at the larger level beyond just the individual, but what does that look like? And I think all, you know, I think, um, I think multiple religious traditions give us many historical stories um, that we can refer to in scripture, but also modern day examples, you know? I mean, think about, um, think about those in our world right now that are offering asylum sanctuary, those that are offering building um, service. Um, the Catholic Church in the United States is one of the largest, it is the largest non-governmental uh, service provider of different types of social services, Lutheran family service. I mean, I just think of so many, I think we forget, sometimes it's just become so much a part of our ecosystem. We forget that so much 
so much of the work that happens in altruism comes from religious communities. So I just encourage us all to think of not just what has happened in the past, but what's already happening and how can we deepen that work and ultimately move it towards an ethic of um, an ethic that will get to more of the root causes, not just um, kind of serving those that are affected by disparities, but thinking about what and how do our religions um, give us um, motivation, inspiration, and sustain a vision of inclusion. Well, if you want to stay connected with Najiba, uh, you can visit najiba.com and follow her on Twitter. That must be really nice that you've, I mean, your website is just your name. It's almost like, um, you know, <laughs> the this, artist formerly known as Prince. Are we recording or are we done? Yeah, no, I just think it's, I just think it's so cool. Like, uh, first of all, I don't, I, I don't have enough clout to create my own website. Um, you know, and I'm sure if by the time I did, I would have to do a really complicated one with my name, but you, I mean, you just have your first name. How amazing is that? Najiba, uh, I'm honored that you made the time uh, to have this conversation and uh, thank you for your leadership and insight into how we might be a part of creating a healthier, multidimensional, pluralistic society. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites, fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in.